0: Uh, I don't know if this is a dynamic that you are familiar with, or maybe that you have in your own household. Uh, but I, I have I have a problem where I can't just I can't just have a TV. Uh, you know, I have to have the streaming things hooked up, and the sound is unacceptable. So I have to have other speakers, and I have to have other things to drive those speakers. Now, thank you. I hear that. Amen. Uh, and 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 what that means is that that. Uh, my wife Heidi and I sometimes have different considerations for how the room is going to be configured. I need the TV to be in a place where I have access to uh, the the coax cable, where I have access to internet uh, and and where I can look around and find convenient places to put speakers. Um, But occasionally she just throws my, my world into a tailspin because she'll just, we'll be sitting there one night watching something and she'll say, you know, I think this weekend I would like to try putting the TV over here, and I say, "Well, why? Why do we have to put it over there? What's what's wrong with it here?" Well, nothing. I just it's been there a long time. I just I'd like to try it over there, and I say, uh, "Okay, I, uh, okay." And for the next few days, I'm obsessed, right? I, I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking up in the ceiling. I, I'm knocking on walls trying to figure out, all right, can I, how can I get this cable over here? And if we, if we move this over here, um, how can I get internet to this thing here? And then where am I going to put the speakers? Maybe I can move this table here. I can move that there. I spend hours problem-solving, trying to figure out how all the technology is going to work, all the things, I might add, that she happily takes advantage of once it's set up. Uh, hours trying to sort out all these difficult and complicated problems. And then, not every time, but a lot of times, uh, we get to the weekend, I say, okay, I've got good news for you. I think I've worked out how we can get the TV over here and where we can put the speakers and how we're going to get internet run to it. And she goes, oh, I I decided it's just fine where it is. I just want to leave it there. All of a sudden, right, all my plans, all these difficult dilemmas I've problem solved, they're all instantly irrelevant, in a similar way, uh, we're going to meet a Samaritan woman in our passage today, uh, and she encounters a Jewish man at her village as well, which is already a strange enough thing, but she then discovers that this man is a prophet, and so she seizes the opportunity to ask him the pressing and contentious religious question of her day, and maybe of the last thousand years, but instead of an answer to her question, she discovers a truth so great And so wonderful that it will render even her question, important as it is, irrelevant. Look with me, if you would, at John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. What we find is, uh, as Jesus had been gaining and baptizing more disciples, uh, the Pharisees find out about this. And so the, the heat gets turned up a little bit and Jesus decides that he's going to leave Judea and head back once more to Galilee. Now, Judea is in the south of Israel uh, and Galilee is in the far north and in between is Samaria. So to get from Judea to, his, to where he was born, where he, well, not where he was born, but where he's from in Galilee, Jesus has to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. And it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came down to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? We find out his disciples have gone into town to buy food, so it's just Jesus here alone. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And the narrator tells us, in case we didn't know, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. But Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw water with, and this well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you, are you greater than our father Jacob? For Jacob gave us this well, and he drank from it, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Well, everyone who drinks from this well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, I will, what I will give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Sir, give me this water then that I will never be thirsty and don't have to keep coming here again and again to draw water. And Jesus replied, okay, go, call your husband and come back. I I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see now that you are a prophet. So tell me, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews, you claim the right place to worship is in Jerusalem. Madam, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming. Maybe when he comes, he'll explain all of this to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Now this passage has a lot to say, but what I want to ask specifically this morning is, what does it say to us about worship? And the first thing we learn is that in and through Jesus, God was doing something that would fundamentally change the way that all people worship. This, I think, is actually, it's a really fun story. It's a great little scene here. And what we have, as you read through it, and you can kind of sense it, I think, is we have this gradual buildup in the conversation. It starts out kind of light and fun, uh, vague with this, this funny back and forth about water and living water. But slowly, if you pay attention, you realize bit by bit, Jesus starts to reveal a little more and a little more. And when he discloses finally this woman's own marital history to her, she immediately recognizes that at the very least, she is in the presence of a prophet. This guy knows things he he cannot have come to know in the normal way. And once she figures that out, she immediately seizes the opportunity to ask him, what is to her the most pressing religious question of her day? She asks him, which group is it? Is it your group or my group, the Jews or Samaritans, who is worshiping Yahweh at the correct location? Should we be worshiping at the Temple Mount, like you guys say, or should we be worshiping here at Mount Gerizim, as my people say? And Jesus' response in verse 21 is that the time is coming... When you all, you plural, will worship neither in Jerusalem nor here on this mountain. Now, we have to pause here a second because this is, whether we recognize it or not, a massive and shocking statement. And it's almost impossible for us to appreciate it. Uh, But we need to try. We need to try and consider how this would have felt to the woman who was actually hearing it. You see, at the time of the encounter, uh, the Jews and Samaritans have each viewed their place of worship as the only proper place of worship for close to 1,000 years. So just let that sink in a moment. This is a feud, this is a fight, this is an argument that's been going on for 1,000 years. For a 1,000 years, the, the Samaritans thought they were worshiping the right place at Mount Gerizim, and the Jews thought they were in the right place at the Temple Mount. I mean, the U.S. is not quite 250 years old. They have 1,000 years invested in these locations. And Jesus says to her, just almost flippantly, almost off the cup, actually, the time is coming when you're not going to worship at either location. It's not going to matter where you are. It's a shocking response. And not just because of the time, but also because of what those locations meant to those people. Uh, Here's part of the problem, I think, is that we're tempted to make the analogy between the temple and the church building, and it's a bad analogy. Those things are not equivalent. Um, You know, this building here, it's a nice building. I Personally, I like it. Um, But but this is just where we happen to meet. We could decide tomorrow to knock it down and to build something completely different on this spot of land. I mean, it would be foolish. It would be very expensive. But we could do it. Uh, And we could move our church to a different site. We've actually done that before. This church was started in downtown Minneapolis. Uh, And that would not change who we are. That wouldn't change what our our ministry is. That wouldn't change the calling that we feel God has placed on our congregation. It just would change where we happen to meet, right? Uh, The temple is a much different situation. Now, this is also an imperfect analogy, but it's a little closer Imagine that you showed up next week and you found out that in the meantime, we had decided we were going to get rid of the, our statement of faith, that during the week people thought, you know what, the Trinity, the work of Jesus, the second coming, eh, we don't really believe that, it's not that important, we're just we're going to throw it out. You, I hope, would say, wait a minute, wait a minute, you can't do that, if you get rid of that, then what are we? If you get rid of that, we're not First Free Church anymore. In fact, we might not even be a church. All of a sudden, you get rid of that, we're just a group of people who happen to be in the same place at the same time. You see, our identity is invested in that, not in this building. It's in what we believe together. For the Jews and the Samaritans, their place of worship was what defined them because it was the proof to them that they were the people of God. They knew that because if you asked, how do you know you're the people of God, they would have pointed to the temple or to Mount Gerizim and said, because God has chosen to dwell here among us. They believed that they worshiped at a place chosen by God and the way God had told them to worship. And Jesus has just told this woman casually over a drink of water that God was right now about to do something that would change that 1,000-year reality forever. He was going to do something so great and so wonderful that it would make her very question irrelevant. And while he doesn't reveal to her what that is at this moment, the author of John's Gospel does. Later on, he tells us that it is Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension that will bring about a change in God's relationship to the world that will make possible a new way to relate to him and to worship him. Something not possible before. We, those of us on this side of the cross, will worship now not as a people promised and awaiting salvation, but as a people who have already seen and received it. And that will change everything. Ultimately, what Jesus will claim is that the temple had always been a signpost pointing ahead to him. He, in fact, hints at this already in John chapter 2. And now that he has come, and especially once his work is completed, the temple will no longer be necessary, and neither would Mount Gerizim. After all, when you reach your destination, you no longer need the signpost directing you there. Jesus was the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, and after him, no more sacrifices would be required. For a time, for a long time, the temple was the right place to worship Yahweh. But Jesus is ushering in a new time, a new age, and with it, a new way to worship. That's the first thing we need to know to make sense of what Jesus is telling her. All right, So, if Jesus is fundamentally changing the way we worship, what does worship look like now for us? Well, I think this passage provides two answers to that question. First, from now on, worshipers will have direct and constant access to the presence of God through his spirit. Look at verses 22 and 23. Jesus says to this woman, Look, you Samaritans, you worship, but you worship what you don't know. We, the Jews, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But he says, A time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and truth. All right, now, in a way that is actually very typical of John's gospel. Jesus is communicating a whole lot here with just a very few words. I could have easily spent the whole sermon just kind of unpacking this statement, and believe me, I spent a good two hours last night from like 8 to 10 p.m. wondering if that's what I should have done this week. Uh, But in the time we have left, I want to take a run at this. Uh, It helps set us on the right track to remember that Jesus is is making this comment in in response to, and kind of in contrast to a question about worshiping at the temple or at Mount Gerizim. And as we've just covered, those aren't just convenient meeting places, OK? Uh, those are the places where God had chosen for His presence to dwell among His people. Uh, the temple was where you went to encounter the presence of God. Uh, in other words, the temple uh, in the temple, God is present. Uh, in a unique and powerful way that he is not present everywhere else, all right? We know God's presence is everywhere, but in the temple, uh, it was, he was uniquely and powerfully present. The way I like to think about it is this. Uh, the temple was a special, even a singular place where humanity could inhabit the same space and time as the living and holy God and not die. All right, that's what the temple is. It's it's a place of overlap. It is a place God specifically designed. God designed it to allow him by means of sacrifices to dwell among his people. But remember, Jesus' contention is that the temple was always a signpost. It pointed beyond itself to something greater. It was not an end in itself. And in Jesus the greater thing had come. Because of the sacrifice Jesus offered, because it was far superior to any made into the temple, he would be able to offer a far greater communion with the presence of God. Do you follow that logic? Okay, small sacrifice, small experience of God's presence, greater sacrifice, greater experience of his presence. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, I thought for a while that I wanted to be an engineer. I liked math and science, they just made sense to me, and so, you know, I don't know, I, I looked at whatever that list is your guidance counselor gives you, and I thought, eh, engineer. Um, so one, one spring, we had gone to visit my family in North Carolina, and my uncle, who lived down there, was a nuclear engineer who worked for Duke Power. Knowing my career interest at the time, he said, hey, why don't you come with me to visit one of our nuclear reactors in South Carolina? And I said, sure, that sounds awesome. So he and I drove to this, this uh, Duke Power Reactor. Uh, we walked in there, and the first place we went was to kind of a kind of a visitor center. All right? They had this little setup, and the first station you'd come to is what looked like you know, the first generation treadmill. There's no screen, no computer. I mean, it's just like you're, it's a, instead of a hamster wheel, it's like a little human wheel. So you, you climb up on here, and, and it's, it's just this track wired to a single incandescent light bulb. And you get on there, and they tell you to start walking, and then start running, getting gradually faster. And once you hit a certain speed, that little light bulb comes on. It's dim, but it's on. You're producing light. Uh, and then, you, then they say, well, try to go faster. Try to get this brighter. So you run faster and faster. You're sweating, panting. You know, you're getting some decent light out of this one light bulb. Uh, and what they want you to see is, it takes actually a lot of energy to light this one bulb, Okay. So you get off, I climb off this treadmill, I'm sweaty, I'm out of breath, and and you go over to the next exhibit, which is a one-for-one replica of one of the rods of uranium that they use in the reactor. I don't remember exactly how big it was, but it looked like something you could pick up and carry around. And as you're standing there, sweating through your t-shirt, out of breath, you look at this little plaque and it says, this amount of uranium in our reactor will power all of South Carolina for a week, or something crazy like that. And you're sitting there going, what? This, for, a, for the whole state for a week? I could barely power a light bulb, right? And what you learn is that if you have a small power source, your options are very limited. You can run one light bulb at a time, maybe you know, a modern high-efficiency television, But you can forget about a refrigerator or a hair dryer. But if you have a massive power source, you can power anything you want for as long as you want. This is the kind of comparison that we're making here. And it's, you know, if you want further reading, this is basically the central argument of the whole book of Hebrews. The temple sacrifices made possible the holy of holies. And, And for the record, that was a great and profound blessing. all right. It was something no other people had. It was an experience of God's presence no other people could claim. But all those sacrifices, all those bulls, of, bulls and goats made possible for one man to have experience of the presence of God in one room on one day a year. And so the question is, if that's what those sacrifices made possible, what will the perfect once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus make possible? And the answer is the constant enjoyment, direct enjoyment of God's presence. Because of Jesus, God will pour out his Holy Spirit upon all people, and everyone who identifies with Jesus, everyone who, who claims his sacrifice as their own will now be filled with the Holy Spirit Jesus' perfect sacrifice makes possible a much greater experience of God's presence. Remember, bulls and goats gets you one guy in one room for one day a year. The sacrifice of Jesus makes possible for every person to have constant, constant enjoyment of the presence of God all the time. We worship now without priests and without mediation. We enter personally and directly into the presence of the living God. That gift is ours everywhere and all the time. And that's only because of Jesus. All right, so that's pretty good. That's already a pretty significant change that Jesus has brought as continual direct access to the presence of God through his spirit. The second big change that Jesus ushers in is that all of the old barriers to worship have therefore been removed. All right, if you think about what we just covered, what I just said, uh, you'll see how this follows on the previous point. Jesus' perfect sacrifice has made possible the gift of God's Holy Spirit to all people who call Jesus their Lord and Savior. And if the Holy Spirit now dwells in us, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you and in me, What that means is that all of the old barriers to worship, geographical, racial, gender, uh, past moral history, all of those barriers are gone. Or as Paul would have it, what can now separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? Nothing. The Samaritan woman in our passage is a perfect example of this. I want you to consider for a second that at the time that she meets Jesus, she faced a whole bunch of significant barriers to worship. She faced the physical barrier of geography. She didn't live in Jerusalem at a time when travel was difficult and dangerous. She faced barriers of gender and ethnicity. As a Samaritan and as a woman, she would have been kept back by actual walls and guards from entering the inner courts of the temple. And most significantly, And just like all the rest of us, she faced the barrier of her own own sin. Her sin separated her from the presence of a holy God. And so what does Jesus' message, what is Jesus' work going to mean for her practically? It means all those barriers are gone. She does not need to go to God anymore because God has come to her. And actually, in a very cool way, poignantly, he has just personally come to her in Jesus. But later, he will come to her through his Holy Spirit. And because of the work of Jesus, she will be able to enjoy the presence of the living God without fear as one fully and freely forgiven. And even those racial and gender barriers are gone because everyone who gives their allegiance to Jesus is in Christ. There's no more Jew or Samaritan, slave or free, male and female. There is only in Christ. And that reality, that same reality, is ours too in Jesus the Messiah. Every single one of us, if you have given your allegiance to Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, you too enjoy direct access, constant access to the presence of the living God. All the barriers you faced before are gone. Jesus was not just the new temple. He was the true temple. He was the perfect once-for-all sacrifice for sin. And it is through Jesus that God's presence can now be directly and constantly enjoyed by any and all people who belong to him. Regardless of gender or race or geography or moral history. And if you do belong to him, then nothing, nothing, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities or powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, shall ever be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing, all the barriers are gone. Here's what that means for us this morning, I think. That means that worship is not and cannot and must not be restricted to one hour on one day and one building and in one form. All right, and if you can't tell, that's my way of saying, it can't just be this hour on Sunday morning here. It can't. That's the old model, and that model is gone. And to be honest... That was just how the old model got applied. That isn't even what God wanted for the old model. If we bring the presence of God with us everywhere that we go, and we do, then everything we do, we do now before the presence of God. Everything can and should and must be worship. You see, God doesn't want just this hour from you. He wants your whole life, offered up to him body and mind. That's what I think it means to worship in the spirit and truth. I think Paul offers the best explanation of this in Romans 12. He spends the first 11 chapters with this this sort of magisterial and complex explanation of, of, of salvation redemptive history and then all of a sudden he wheels on his audience and he looks directly at the church in Rome and he says, Therefore, because of what God has done for you in Jesus, because God has poured out his Holy Spirit on you, the only possible and appropriate response is for you to offer back to God your very selves as a sacrifice, as a living sacrifice in worship. That's what it is to worship in spirit and truth. That is, that in response to the truth of what God has done for you in Jesus, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would offer ourselves back to God, body and mind and worship. If we don't, if we try to restrict worship to certain prescribed activities at certain times that are convenient for us, then, then what are we doing except rebuilding the barriers that Jesus died to tear down. Friends, worship is not an activity. It it is the posture of our entire lives. It is where we direct our attention. It's what we allow to shape us. Paul goes on in that verse, and he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, and he explains don't allow yourselves to be, to be conformed to the pattern of this world. Don't let the world shape you. Don't let your society and your culture shape you. Fix your eyes on Jesus and allow his spirit to shape you, to transform you after the pattern of the Messiah. That's worship. Fixing our attention on Jesus and being shaped into his likeness. When we live in obedience and partnership with God, We worship him. When we approach every aspect of our life, whether that be work or school or just managing our own families, caring for one another, with our attention fixed on Jesus, we worship him. And because of the sacrifice of Jesus, because of the great gift of the Holy Spirit, it is now possible for all of us, anyone who gives their allegiance to Jesus, It is possible for all of us to live our lives in that posture. So here's my plea this morning. Don't rebuild the barriers that Jesus tore down. Worship the Father in the spirit and truth and offer your whole selves, body and mind, to him in worship. Would you bow with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, I just want to close by thanking you this morning. We thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, and we thank you that his perfect sacrifice on our behalf made possible the constant and direct communion with you Father, we thank you for that. That's something we could have never accomplished. It's a gift we simply received this morning. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have poured your Spirit out on all people, that you dwell in the hearts of all people who call Jesus their Lord and Savior. We thank you that that means that we enjoy a constant, direct experience of your presence that would have been the envy of everyone who lived before the time of Jesus Help us, Lord, not to take that for granted. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to respond in the only way that makes any sense, which is to offer our whole lives back to you as a living sacrifice. In your name we pray, amen.